On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Facebook, not the outage that we had this week. We're talking about the allegations made against the company by the whistleblower who was speaking in front of a, con- a congressional hearing and spoke to 60 Minutes in the Wall Street Journal. These are some really unbelievably troubling allegations that are being made. What is going on with Facebook and how credible is what she's saying? We're going to talk about that. We're also talking about music, specifically the fact that so many musicians, big time musicians are coming out with biographies now. Do you want to read the biography of a musician? Does this spin your wheels or do you just want to enjoy the music and imagine what their life was without having all the nitty gritty? We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have watched 60 Minutes on Sunday. If you didn't, you may have watched or heard some of the accounts today from the congressional hearings where a woman who had worked for Facebook was an executive, a high-ranking employee there, over a number of years, I guess, had taken, printed out, pages, documents from Facebook that were pretty damning, a lot of them. Anyway, she she spoke to the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think it was Wall Street Journal. She certainly did 60 Minutes on the weekend. This is now a thing. This is now a problem for Facebook. And this is a problem, I think, for a lot of social media. This is, I don't know if the day of reckoning is here, whatever that means. But something is happening. I want to bring in Alan Mendelson. He is a lawyer who specializes in internet issues. Love having him on here. Alan, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I Listen, I, I'm better than uh, uh, the people at Facebook, I'm guessing, right now, because uh, <laughs> I'm thinking there's some sweaty foreheads there. Because what what she said, and, and the key here, Alan, is not just that what she said, what she appears to have authentic documents to back up, which is the problem for them, it's some pretty devastating stuff. Would you agree? Oh, no question. I mean, the the issue is really that there's so much that Facebook has done internally that has shown that there's problems with what they're doing, and they've never released that, and it's taken a whistleblower to release that. And, and that becomes very problematic in the long-term future, possibly, of Facebook. Yeah, and for people who have not followed any of this story, and that's fine if you haven't, we'll try to catch you up. I mean, we're not just talking about, oh, Facebook took away my posting about puppies. Um, She's talking about Facebook causing genocide in Myanmar and ethnic violence and spreading disinformation and, her words, tearing societies apart. And I don't know if she's exaggerating, but boy, oh boy, I mean, that is some egregiously enormous stuff, some huge allegations against them. Well, there's there's no question that there's a very bad, you know, I'm trying, I, I like, I, I can't, it, it's hard for me to wrap my, my head around this. So it's very difficult for me to make sense of what's going on. But at the same time, it, it's very clear that Facebook is, as you know, as the whistleblower has said, the Facebook is prioritizing its profits over any sort of public good. And that is the moment where generally um, regulators might step in and, and do something. Regulators or even the public say enough. 
I, I'm now, I, I mean, maybe too many people are addicted to Facebook to actually do anything, but it's not just Facebook either. Cause Facebook owns one of the other companies that was specifically mentioned here was Instagram. And I guess they have, according to her again, they have research that shows in house that shows that Instagram has harmed young girls and their body image and all kinds of things around that. Um, you know, but Alan, the thing where this now gets, as you say, where regulators step in, Mark Zuckerberg, the guy behind Facebook, he has testified in front of Congress a number of times. And my recollection is that almost always when questions come up about stuff, it's, well, we don't really have the research or the research doesn't back this up or the research is unclear. This suggests the research is pretty darn clear, at least based on what she's saying. Well, absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's the problematic part is, the, the, the fact is, it's, it's a good thing that Facebook is doing its own internal research, but they're not really acting upon it. So that's that's what becomes, you know, if they are not acting and recognizing that their own internal research and the documents that are that have were leaked to The Wall Street Journal and that are being presented by this whistleblower, you know, if they're not acting upon that, well, then it is in, incumbent upon governments and regulators to actually do something. I was going to ask you this later, but we'll do it right now. What what can or should, because I want to get into what the, how this problem is being caused, but let's do this. What can a regulator or should a regulator do? Because this is still a private company and you don't necessarily want to have government interfering in private companies all that much. So what what could they do? Well, correct. I mean, well, I mean, first understand the difference between a private company and a public company in terms of public shares being available to investors. Right. right. So it's not public sector. Public it's, company yeah. In that point. So they are in some sense, you know, beholden to their investors. And, you know, interestingly enough, over the last couple of days, the stock value of Facebook is plum not plummeting, but it, it, it is certainly falling as a result of the, you know, um, the the 60 minute well i mean the the wall street journal thing and then 60 minutes and then the outage yesterday so uh you know there may be pressure from the shareholders and the board of directors who are supposed to act in for the benefit of the shareholders um but with respect to actually public you know the government and what the government can do well i mean as the law is written in the United States, there is very little they can do. There's something called the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and the you know other laws that require that sort of protect Facebook, which make it difficult. But the laws were made by Congress in the first place, and the laws can change it again. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to say what can be done. But, you know, like I said, at some point, governments can act. They act to break up large telecommunications monopolies in the past, in the past, excuse me, Uh, specifically, um, you know, you think of Bell, Bell in the United States, was one giant telecommunications company that was broken up. Alan, the thing that she is alleging that is the real problem here is the algorithm that's being used. I mean, there may be other things, but this is what I took from it. The algorithm that's being used, which really is two issues. One, it pumps stuff into your feed, into users' feed that it thinks you want to hear. So you really get a very myopic view of the world because it's just feeding you back. You're an echo chamber. It just gives you the stuff you want to hear. The other 
She says that anger, that their research says anger stimulates feelings and engagement time more than happy feelings. So they are literally trying to get you angry. Is that, uh, that that's, I mean, I don't know if that's criminal, but that can't be healthy if the whole idea of your social media time is to enrage you. Well, it's certain it's certainly not healthy. The only issue, I mean, from a, it's not really a criminal act to do something like that, but from an ethical standpoint, uh, you know, a return to something I said earlier, where she says that Facebook is prioritizing profits over everything. And the way you maximize profits in Facebook is keeping those users staring at their screen as long as possible and engaging with certain content more and more. So what she's saying is that certain types of, well, misinformation and things that possibly, you know, promote violence or other nasty things, those are more engaging and keep people staring at their screens for longer. And as a result, as soon as they're staring at their screens for longer, Facebook makes more money off of advertising. And, and if you're, yeah, and if you're staring at your, and if you're staring at your screen for longer, if what she's saying is true, you're not only getting angry and getting you know, roped in here, but now you're staring longer to get more angry, to stare at the screen longer, to stay more and more angry. And look, not everybody is going to riot on either side of the political equation, but well, exactly. you know what? Enough you people know, get angry, stuff can happen. Right, exactly. You know, and the, the, the anger feeds anger. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. So, and, and Facebook has chosen, according to this whistleblower, to feed off of that because it makes them more money for advertising dollars. So that's got to be problematic. And, and, and likewise, we were talking before the break, it's possibly necessary that someone needs to step in and do something about it. I'm not sure that this is entirely just a Facebook problem, though. Uh, you know, the details might be different. The, the specifics might be different. But it seems as though it's a social media issue broadly that, that all of them want you to stay on the screen. And if the research is that whatever can get you fired up is it, it works. I mean, this may be broader than just Facebook. I don't know. Well, there's no question. I mean, it is broader than Facebook and this is problematic under any number of social media sites. Um, but the fact is all you have to do is look at the numbers. How many people worldwide use Facebook compared to use any other platform, which may be equivalent or semi-equivalent to Facebook. And the numbers show that it's ridiculous how much Facebook controls and how many people are actually Facebook users around the world. You know, and related to that, when Facebook went out yesterday, there were people commenting um, in parts of Africa that when Facebook goes down, some people in Africa think the internet has gone down because Facebook has made Facebook equivalent to the internet in some parts of the world. So that's a whole other level of problems that 
Facebook could be facing. Yeah, I, and, and look, I mean, I, I truly don't believe that Mark Zuckerberg, when he started this thing, could have comprehended where this thing would have gone. And, and part of me, maybe the naive side, maybe the innocent side who tries to find the good in people, and part of me looks and goes, no one thought this would be what it is. And so this is being made up on the fly. The flip side, on the other hand, though, is these documents are saying, yeah, but it may be being made up on the fly, but they do know some stuff about this that they, according to her, that they're ignoring. I mean, it's you can't claim complete innocence, even though the intent may not have been evil. Right, absolutely. And, you know, and part of the testimony that was made in Congress today, she was saying that, look, and, and, and during the 60 Minutes interview as well, she was saying the company is Mark. Mark is the one who sets the tone, who sets the precedent, who decides in the end, who is the decider as to what is going to happen moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, in some sense, the responsibility really does lie on him. Yeah, as I say, I I don't think the well. I mean, look, if you watch that uh, the movie Once Upon a Time that came out about the beginnings of Facebook, maybe you think the intent was not good to begin with. But I mean, I'm I'm trying to cut them some slack and say I don't think that necessarily the intent of Facebook when it started was to lead to ethnic cleansing and genocide and societal unrest. I really I don't believe at Harvard he was sitting in his room thinking that's what I'll create. But when you do create a Frankenstein monster, which, it, you know, according to her, it kind of is, you do have to do something to control it or to try to. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I, I apologize for chuckling and what, you know, what you were saying, but you are correct. I agree with you that back at Harvard, this was never intended. But in fact, this is where we are now. Yes. And he has not reacted to it in any proper way. It seems to me, and it seems to the whistleblower and to Congress. Clearly. Uh, Alan Mendelson, who, uh, internet lawyer, and by the way, for people listening, Alan has been having all kinds of technical issues thanks to us and has pushed through. And Alan, I really appreciate you doing it. Thanks for the time today. Well, thank you. And it may be my fault. You know, I'm only a tech lawyer. I'm not so great at tech. <laughs> it may be my fault. Alan, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Eric Alper. He is a music writer. He's a published music publicist. He's a, well, he does a lot of things. He does an awful lot of things, but today we're talking music with Eric. Eric, how are you tonight? I'm good. I'm glad that you kept continuing your word, Dr. Awful. Eric Alper <laughs> does it awful. And then just that, just leave it hanging in the air like that. So, hey, it's always good to talk to you. It's always good to be here. Yeah. Thank goodness the technology didn't break at that point. We went off the air right there. Eric Alper, who is awful. <laughs> Good night. Uh, so I got a quick question for you before we get into the main stuff I want to talk to you about. Why yeah. is it, Eric, because you, you spent tons of time in music. Why do we get so excited when we hear a song on the radio that we like, when we're turning the dial and a song, we even if we own the song, if we've listened to it a million times and we can listen to it anytime we want, what is, what is it about that song on the radio that thrills us so much? I think it's a sense of community. I, I think it's a justification of the id and the ego to tell ourselves subconsciously that we have, a song correctly in order to love 
and the fact that the universe is ever expanding and ever changing the fact that out of the 65 <laughs> million songs that have been released since 1970 that the dj chose to play your favorite song at that moment that you were listening to it is a rush of endorphins that only apparently cocaine and heroin can provide for you that is maybe the deepest answer any ever given on this show. Endorphins <laughs> I, and you ego and, and I, id and, and, and I the... science. So like, what did my science teacher know? I, I think that's truly it. I think it's just a rush of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to drive a little bit faster because this is my song. And the weird part about it also is that somehow it always the song always sounds a little better on the radio than it does oh, when absolutely. you play it on whatever else you have it on? Oh, totally. I well, you know what? There's people that will complain and argue with me. Well, it's a very one-sided argument on social media because I just don't argue with them. Um, that vinyl is better than CDs. That high-res audio is better than vinyl. I'll still tell them nothing sounds as good as hearing your favorite song on the radio. Nothing. I I agree, and it's it's just a it's a weird weird thing because again, there's so many songs we own, so many of them. You you may have just listened to it five times over, and then you get in the car and it's like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> All right. So I saw. Speaking of musicians and social media and stuff, we were talking social media last hour. I saw a post today that says that Getty Lee, who of course Rush is no longer touring because of the death of Neil Peart, um, got some time on his hands. Uh, Getty Lee is apparently working on his memoirs, you know, all about his life in Russia. Is that something you would read? Oh, I think we lost hello? Eric. Oh, there's oh, Eric. No. Is that something yeah. you would read, Eric? Um, yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, mostly because even though that I'm not the biggest Rush fan in the world, um, he's from my city. So there's a lot of things in the beginning of his story that I would recognize um, the high school that he went to, the area where they jammed. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm always interested in finding out how people got to the point where they made it look so easy. And because I'm in music, um, I've always got time for people who write books like that, whether it's Getty Lee or... Um, you know, little Steven who has a new one out and, and Dave Grohl's. I finished Dave Grohl's in literally like two days. It was just like he was talking to me, telling me the best stories I've ever heard in my life. So I've always got time for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, look, these musicians and there's so many of these memoirs, biographies, whatever, there's so many of them out there. Why do you think they do it? Why do you think they feel that they are they want to tell their story? Is it a need to remain in the spotlight? Is it a belief that there is great interest? Is it narcissism? Is it money? Why, why do you, what do you think drives these people to think that their story is worth sharing? I think it's all of those things that you mentioned. You know, what, one of the things that the music industry has faced is a lack of income for a lot of mid-level artists who would normally rely on getting a large percentage of that $28 CD or $30 vinyl that people used to buy in record stores in the hundreds of thousands. And now they don't. Now they're competing with the 0.0004 cents per stream. And, you know, that's not a lot of money for a lot of artists these days. So they're looking to diversify their income. 
and nothing more, nothing less than that. They're looking for another way to earn a living. The other thing is like in the last 18 months, we've seen a huge influx in the amount of memoirs because their managers and booking agents were telling them, you may not be able to go out on tour for three years. Um, so your ex-wife still needs to get paid or your family <laughs> needs to keep that house. So you better start writing something or start selling off memorabilia or um, things like that. The other thing, and I never really thought about it until recently, is, you know, you and I kind of grew up in the age of newspapers and magazines where Rolling Stone would have eight-page features or the New York Times or newspapers, the Hamilton Spectator, the, the Toronto Star, would have, you know, 24-page sections in the entertainment section or the sports section, and you got to tell the story. You didn't have to compete with... 280 characters on Twitter. You didn't have to compete with um, an Instagram post that only allowed you a couple of paragraphs. You really got a sense for who this artist was as a person, the surroundings, how they wrote something. And that's kind of gone. You don't have those magazines that, um, that offer that anymore. You don't have newspapers that can devote pages to an artist. So this is the artist's chance to tell their story in a time where it's a little bit out of lock and step, where we want something now, we want something fast. I don't have time to read, you know, a 300-page book, but seemingly there's a large segment of population who actually still does want that, and it's a little bit behind the times, but it is what it is. Well, and and whether or not they do lead fascinating lives, because I'm not convinced that all of them, that their life is way more exciting than yours or mine, but some of them, some of them you look and you go, yeah, I, I, I got to know what was going on behind the scenes with your stuff, because, you know, there yeah. are a few of those star rock rockers, it doesn't have to be rock guys, but I mean, there are a few of them where you go, there's got to be some stories. Oh, there's a book out, um, and I haven't read it yet. It's by a guy by the name of Stephen Davis. Now, Stephen Davis wrote The Gods of the Hammer, or, or sorry, The Hammer of the Gods, um, and it is the expose on Led Zeppelin. He ended up then writing another book on the doors. He has just released an unauthorized biography of Duran Duran. Now, I know some people out there are like, Duran Duran, like, what? Duran Duran used to have on their internal tour pages of the day, meaning when they ever, when they woke up into a city, they got an itinerary. It used to have the age of consent on the top left-hand corner of every city so that they knew that the guys in the band and the crew wouldn't get into trouble. But you have to just look at the footage in the 80s when they were massive at how many hundreds of thousands of screaming girls would go and try to track them down wherever they went. That is a book, I'm sure, of nothing but sex and drugs and debauchery. But there's other, I think, books where I think it is, a, you know, there. not everybody does it for the money. I think sometimes, you know, in the case of Little Stephen, for instance, I'm sure he thought about writing a book when his boss, Bruce Springsteen, did so well on his book. I'm sure Stephen was like, well, I could do one too. And I get to tell my stories about Bruce as well. So I think part of it is like, you know, other people are doing it so they can too. And then you just end up with 
seemingly every band that was popular in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s having to tell their story. Yeah, and I wonder how long this is going to work. That I wonder how long this is going to be okay because the world has changed. And these yeah. guys, and most of them are guys, if they tell the absolute truth about some of the stuff they did on the road, uh, I'm not. Once upon a time, we might have gone, ha ha ha, look what they now. I think they probably get an awful lot of flack for some of the stuff that happened. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Which is why you end up with, you know, and I agree with you. This is the last kind of gasp for this kind of novel, autobiography, rock star memoir. And mostly because the next generation of musicians, Lady Gaga, Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Shawn Mendes, Billie Eilish, they're not writing their own memoir. They're doing a Netflix documentary. And they get right. to control the, the, the actual visual of what's going on. And, you know... In a world where, again, you and I grew up in an age of newspapers getting to control people's view of somebody, look at what's gone on with R. Kelly and Britney Spears. It wasn't a newspaper article or magazine article, although those were years in the making. It was the Netflix documentaries that made their court cases, respectively, go towards the finish line, at least of what we've seen right now. So you have all of these artists that aren't thinking about putting pen to paper and writing 300 pages on it. They're actually starting to put together their own visual memoir and telling it through Netflix, getting to control the image. And we've even heard, I heard today that Celine Dion has an authorized documentary coming out, which, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine it's going to be anything more than a, glamorized sales pitch for the wonderfulness that is Celine Dion. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be storybook, right? It's going to be, um, you know, girl who's nine years old, discovers singing, um, celebrity at 12, um, out of all the millions of people in the world meets her manager who's soon to be her husband. They have a fairy tale wedding. He passes away. She's crumbled to the ground and then rises like a phoenix from the ashes of all of that <laughs> with her brand new album. I mean, it's Disney come to life, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is, the up and down mark is exactly what it was for Justin Bieber and Billie Eilish's documentary, too. Justin Bieber got sick just before the biggest show of his career. Will he make it? Tune in and find out. And he does. And so all of it has a nice little arc of, of you know, playtime and story time that we're all used to. There's a very much a high, a very much a low, and then it ends on a complete high and the fans feel really good about joining that, that fan club. Yeah. And the fan looks, I'm sure Celine Dion's fans will love this. They, they probably don't want an unauthorized biography of the, a Kitty Kelly for those old enough to remember that a Kitty Kelly version of this. But I, I do yeah. wonder, I, I, I mean, if you had a choice, I know, and people listening, you answer this question yourself. If you had a choice, would you rather read the authorized biography from the mouth of the person who probably is shaping it to make themselves look the best they possibly can or an unauthorized biography that may not have just nice things in it, but is boy, it's um, and it may make your hero look not so good, but boy, uh, to me, they, they tend to be way more interesting. You know, what's amazing about that question I bet you the answers will have the exact same amount of lies and mistruths in both books. Um, huh. you Just know, going different ways. 
Yeah, like I just like I read Sinead O'Connor's Remembering's book. Um, she is what they were, and I've worked with her in the past. She is what you would call um, and uh, something like an inactive, an inactive narrator, meaning that you don't really quite know if she remembers this correctly. But what is correctly, though? I mean, this is still her truth, and she's going to get it down there. It's, she's like an unreliable source. And I think if Mick Jagger, for instance, were to actually write his own memoir, which he's not he hasn't been threatening to do for decades, although he signed a couple of deals and he's given back the money. Um, I'm not so sure that all of that would be truthful as well, because Mick Jagger is in the business of being Mick Jagger. He doesn't want people to let you know how boring his life is, but he also doesn't want to reveal any secrets. So I, I might be a little bit of both. You know, I think the people that I love a lot, I've read both sides of their issue. Um, and I, doesn't and it doesn't change my mind the only person to be honest with you that changed my perspective on them was phil collins autobiography and i love phil collins i mean i'm like borderline obsessive with phil collins hmm. she come to my house i have family photos of my own family and right in the middle is a black and white photo of phil collins like he's part of my family and i don't even i've never met him before he kind of comes across as a sad sad man in it. And I think that's what he wanted people to think about. Mm. But he was really truthful with his ups and downs, and especially his problems that he has made himself and the bed that he had made with the drug and alcohol problems and his divorces. It doesn't make him out to be very good. And it kind of tainted my view of him a little bit. But that, I think, is the only time when it's been like, ew, like, I don't know how much I like this guy anymore. But of course, I still love him. But it changed my it changed the, the, the perception of him. And it was his own book. If Mick Jagger wanted, if Mick Jagger, if only Mick Jagger's kids bought his book, he'd be, it would be a bestseller. <laughs> I mean, that's how many, that's how many, he's just, so if he just wants to tell his story for his kids coming along, he could tell lots and tell that. Um, Yeah. You know, I, I, as I wonder about this with some of these stories, I wonder if it's the dirt that sells or the hero worship that sells the book. And I'm not sure I know the answer. And sometimes it can be overlapping. It can be both. I mean, that one that was made into a movie um, about Motley Crue. I mean, that was a bit of yeah. both of those things all at the same time. But I wonder if you're if you're the publisher and you're sitting there with a rock star in front of you and you're saying, we want you to write this book as laying everything out and hanging everyone out to dry about all the stuff that happened on the bus. Or we want you to thrill your fans with the gloriousness of you. I'm not sure which the answer is. Oh, uh, there, there, I know for a fact that there are people and, and very, very big musicians and celebrities that had to, by force, uh, return the advance that they received from the book publisher because it wasn't juicy enough. Um, that they wanted to get into the real nitty gritty of their drugs, their sexual liaison, their alcohol, their divorces. Um, they didn't want a, here's how we wrote this song and here's what happened when we were on a tour and it was nice. Um, they, you're, you've got to compete, you know, you've got to kind of yeah. go with, um, you know, your, your competition. If you're a rock star is the Motley Crue book because you will always be, you'll always be referenced in that. So I think for a lot of artists, they might be not interested in kiss and tell, 
Um, but that's exactly what the book publishers want because, you know, they're actually paying in anywhere between $100,000 and sometimes tens of millions of dollars um, to the artist to, to write the book. And it has to sell. They need to make their money back. They're not doing it for the glory. They're doing it as a profit-making thing as well. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it can be both. I mean, it wasn't a book. we got to run. I know it wasn't a book, but it's and it's not on Netflix anymore. I looked up this afternoon, but the history of the Eagles that was on there was one of the best oh, things yeah. I've seen. So great. It, but it was authorized because the band members were in it, but it also had all the warts and the fights and the yeah. other stuff that was going on. And that's why I think it worked because they were honest enough to say, look, we, we can't come on here and try and tell everyone that it was just a smooth ride all right. the way and nothing bad exactly. ever happened. Exactly. Exactly. You know? And it. it worked and it was great. Yeah. And they're the Eagles and they're untouchable. Like they are untouchable. No matter well, that what helps they too. say or do, you know, nothing is going to change the way how people think about them. And you're exactly right. If they would have been, no, we were actually all really nice friends. Nobody would have believed us. Eric Alper, always love having you on. We didn't even get to all the other stuff today, but another time. (laughs) Uh, Really appreciate you doing this. Thanks, as always. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.